You're listening to Mech's Design Talk, the podcast about the intersection of emerging technologies, user behavior, and how to design better digital experiences. This episode was first published on Thursday, the 14th of April, 2016. You can find show notes linking to everything we talk about in the podcast at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. Before we get started with the main discussion, I just wanted to try and set it in context a little bit. So Alex Guest, the co-host of the podcast, and I, and Richard Lewis, who's the head of digital user experience at RBS, a large British financial services organization, uh, sat down to examine this theme of trust in uh, digital user experience. And it provides a, a pretty good example, I think, this discussion of uh, how uh, the MEX community and this podcast are bringing together a depth of people and ideas about the progression of user experience uh, over the long term. Uh, Richard uh, from RBS is someone that first came to MEX when he was with a large telco operator, Orange, um, uh, quite a number of years ago now, and came as a participant to one of the events and we got talking and stayed in touch uh, over the years as his roles evolved. He went on to then head to user experience at Tesco as well. And whenever we got together at different events, we always seemed to come back to having conversations about particular topics, one of which was this notion uh, of trust, particularly how you do that at large scale within big telco organizations, uh, big retailers like Tesco, which is still the, the largest uh, retailer in the UK. Um, and now, of course, subsequently, this is something Richard, I, I know, has been thinking about a lot in the context of his role uh, with this financial services organization. Uh, in tandem with this, uh, within the MEX community, uh, back in 2014, we also introduced uh, the notion of trust as one of our MEX user modes. Uh, and we ran a creative uh, session at the MEX 2014 event, led by Rich Clayton. Uh, and that group was tasked with a design challenge over the course of the two days of the MEX event to come up with a series of principles to define how you can create uh, digital experiences that feel trusted for the users. Uh, and the process for those creative sessions uh, is an interesting one. Um, we set a very specific challenge question at the start of the, the two days, and then we get together a group of the event participants to work with a facilitator, in this case, uh, Rich Clayton. We pair them up with some design students from Brunel University who are there to help stimulate the group's thinking and also to help them illustrate uh, their outputs at the end of the session. And they work together over the course of two days in between uh, the keynote uh, uh, talks at, at the event. Uh, and at the end of it, they're expected to come back and share the results of what they've come up with, with all of the other conference participants who may have been working in other groups uh, addressing other topics. Uh, and of course, what that's given us over the years uh, is this body of principles and insights which have emerged from each of those uh, working sessions. And we 
typically run about five or six of these groups at each of the events. So there are a great number of them that have built up over the years, uh, which we can go back to and use as reference material when we think about these issues uh, in the current market and when we look to the, the future as well. Um, so what we've done uh, in tandem with the release of this podcast episode is to also release uh, those principles that came out of that working group relating to how you create trusted experiences. Uh, and those are now up at mobileuserexperience.com. And I'd urge you to uh, go and take a look and um, see what's there in the, the MEX archives and all of the other content that we've published over the years that links into this. Um, and uh, have a listen to the discussion um, I found it a, an intriguing conversation where we looked at this notion of trust um, with Alex and Richard from um, several different angles. Uh, and do let us know uh, what you thought of it as well. Do please get in touch. You can uh, reach us at MexFeed on Twitter. Um, or if you have a look on mobileuserexperience.com, there are uh, several ways to, to get in touch, say by phone or email. Here's the discussion. Hope you enjoyed. Welcome to the MEX podcast. I'm Marek Pawlowski, the founder of MEX, and I'm joined by the co-host of the podcast, Alex Guest. Alex, how are you doing today? Hi there, Marek. Very good, thanks. How are you doing? Yes, very well indeed. And delighted that we also have with us Richard Lewis on the podcast. Uh, now, Richard is the head of user experience in a financial services company. Richard, how are you doing? Hi, Marek. I'm good, thanks. Yeah, Good to be here. Uh, yeah, I'm very glad you could make it. Uh, now, we were going to start the podcast today um, by returning to a theme that we've looked at at some of our previous MEX events and in the MEX initiative before, and that is this user mode of what we call trust, which is a very intangible notion at best. Um, so we thought we would try and put a little bit of meat around it by talking about a couple of examples of what we mean uh, when we talk about trust in the digital world. Um, now, in the physical sense, it's something which you know really does exist on a sliding scale for humans. Um, you, know, you can go from I really trust you to I sort of trust you. Uh, and when it comes to replicating this sort of thing in digital, you come down to this paradox almost, which is that digital is very much an absolute medium built from ones and zeros. Uh, and at that intersection, between how we perceive trust in the physical world and how we perceive trust in the digital world, we have a very important role for design to reconcile that and to come up with a way of making this very absolute medium of digital uh, relate a little bit more to the kind of human feelings that we have about trust. Um, so we thought we'd talk through a couple of examples to get the conversation going about that. Uh, and then I know Richard's work um, over his many years in user experience, um, has touched on this theme quite a bit. So we're then going to talk to him a little bit about his career in that area. Uh, so Alex, um, we had a bit of homework to do and went off to try and find some examples related to this. Uh, have you managed to find anything interesting? I have. Um, but before I launch into that, I, I thought I'd do a little bit of research uh, as to exactly what trust means. Um, and, and I guess during the course of our conversation this afternoon, we'll, we'll sort of uh, evolve uh, what we mean by trust. Uh, but I had a quick look on Wikipedia, um, and Wikipedia tells me that there are, in fact, 
three rock bands uh, called Trust. Um, there are five albums with the name Trust and, and over a dozen songs. Um, so clearly Trust is a, is a seriously important thing in society um, in, in general. Uh, but um, I feel like this is the point at which we need to splice in a musical interlude. Well, uh, I, I then went to, to, to Deezer and had a look for songs called Trust, and I and I heard I discovered that there's a song called Trust by Justin Bieber. So maybe you could uh, you could splice that in. I, I, I'm not sure we could impose that on our listeners. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I remember the day uh, more than 30 years ago now when my father came home with a, a brand new TV. Um, and we were all mystified by this thing because it had this funny little black box um, with very few buttons, uh, but just a couple of buttons that allowed you to control it. And this was the first time I'd ever seen a TV with a remote control. Uh, nothing like remote controls of today with a myriad numbers of buttons, but you know, just a sort of on-off switch, and, and I think it had the ability to turn the volume uh, up and down and, and to, to scroll through channels. Very, very basic. And And... Almost immediately, uh, you know, you, you get to understand how it works, and and you get, you you kind of gain trust in that little box's affordance to switch the screen on and off, to change channels, and do all of that from the comfort of your sofa. And one thing that you know very quickly is that it controls just the one machine in the home, just the TV. It's not going to switch on the, the the washing machine or or, or start to you know. Uh, cook your pasta or whatever else it happens to be. It's just the TV, and, and it does exactly what you expect it to do until the batteries run out. So in this case, would you say that the affordances of that were amplified by the simplicity of the experience for you? Well, I mean, we're going back 30 years, but I, I think if we look at remote controls today, I, I, I am confused by remote controls. They are, they are far too complicated. Um, uh, I don't spend much time watching TV these days anyway, but uh, the, the fact that it was so simple, that it had very clear signifiers telling you what you can and can't do, um, that made uh, the affordances that much clearer. And, and, um, and yeah, so you gain trust in, in, in the device's ability to do what you want it to do immediately. So this term affordance is an interesting one. I mean, this is something which is very much part of the designer's vocabulary, as I'm sure Richard is familiar with. Um, is this something that you're coming across day to day in, in your work, Richard, this notion of how you communicate those kind of affordances to your users? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think more and more as the digital experience and the physical objects start to start to align with we're seeing more and more the need for the ux to really show what the next step should be um and i think that's a great example that alex has with the with the remote control that what does that mean for the next stage for wearables for, for devices that are going to be much more personal um, we've gone through the era of mobile devices as we move towards more uh, of a wearable device. What what does the affordance mean there? Um, yeah, absolutely, it's something that that we need to consider every day. Actually, while Alex was describing that, uh, it, it was making me think about one of my favourite 
bits of kit from you know, a more recent era, which is the um, remote control for the, I think it was the second generation and third generation Apple TVs. I know they've updated it recently, but that one that they had a couple of years ago, um, to my mind, is one of the uh, pieces of kit that I've come across that communicates those affordances best. I mean, it's the antithesis of most uh, home entertainment remote controls in that there are literally two buttons on there and then one sort of circular D-pad and they control everything. And the whole way in which the thing is crafted just kind of communicates that assurance, that trust, if you like, that it's going to do what you expect it to do, right down to simple things like using uh, convex and concave uh, on the two buttons that are there. So your finger can very easily find those and trust that you're pressing the right thing while you're doing it, which, yeah, as you say, sometimes it's those very simple things um, which end up being at the heart of a, a good experience. Yeah, I really think that's that's the way things are going with the smaller devices that we're going to be seeing. The simple simplicity is going to be absolutely key, and, and it's that affordance of interacting more with the physical devices we've seen with with the watches coming out of. What what do you expect that to do from a pre-digital age? What would you expect that button to do and feel um, and do that in the most simple way where I think we've come from a more complex era of <clears throat> user experience through PC and web and into mobile where for, for quite some time it seemed to be more more options, more more complication. And uh, and I think we're going to be moving further away from that to to a much more simple focus on on affordance. And Richard, I think in in terms of 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 this simplicity, um, I think one of the things that we touched on just a moment ago was was this idea of of uh, effectiveness and and the range of effectiveness and, and trust that you therefore gain in in a device, whether it is physical or, or a software uh, device. Um, and I think with with things like um, well, I mean, we're recording this on on the via Skype, and and Skype at the end of this call will probably ask us to rate the quality. Um, but uh, do do you think we are tending towards uh, the need for um, effectively a sort of a, a, a boolean standard of of trust, where it, either it works or it doesn't work, rather than a range of effectiveness? Yes, I think so. I think people's expectations are are increasing to that point of if it doesn't work first time it's probably not good enough and and i think that's that's a change we're seeing now as as we know ex user experience is, is so critical to to success for, for all digital services that that level of expectation for customers has has raised to the point of if you don't match my expectation of what I would expect with 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 another service that I use and trust, then I'm probably not going to trust this. Um, and I think we're in the world I'm in at the moment of financial services. We're seeing that a lot of you know even things like Touch ID, uh, which is which is allowing some some fantastic new experiences for using banking apps to to allow customers to to log in just just using the Touch ID. I think that raises the bar again of well that's that's fantastic i can do that in my banking app but you know it's it's not it's not an experience that is unique to to just banking and that raises expectations of 
um, what what that experience for for logging in using passwords etc should be in in other services. Uh, so the level of trust increases um, if you know how much how much do you trust your your fingerprint? It's quite interesting as well. I think how um, it's now becoming possible to make that judgment about the level of trust that you have in something much more rapidly. I mean, I think when you work in digital industry day to day, it's very easy to get caught up in all of the sort of very latest advances, which are rolling out literally on a daily basis, almost, you know, whether you're able to have a fingerprint supported in a fingerprint scanner supported in this device versus that device, whether it's got NFC, those kind of things, which are all happening on this kind of micro timescale of new releases on a a daily, weekly, monthly basis. But if we sort of zoom out of this and look at it from the perspective of, um, users at large and perhaps the kind of longer time scale that is one of the the macro things that's changed about this area is the speed at which um, you get a sense of whether or not you uh, are going to trust the thing that you are using I and mean, when i was looking around before the show for an example of this uh, i came back to one that we used actually as a, um, a stimulus item at our previous mex event we looked at this topic which was the post box Uh, And if you think back to when post boxes were first introduced or how we still use them today, uh, you go up to it, you put a letter into that post box and you really have no proof whatsoever for potentially a number of days before you hear from the person who that letter was addressed to, whether or not they actually received it. And yet we trust that it is going to get there for a variety of different reasons related to you know the brand the whole interface of the the post box the way we've come to to trust that postal service but if you look at what's happening in digital today we can get those results and make those decisions about trust almost instantly because things like touch id give you a microsecond response as to whether or not that thing uh, has worked and the same with different apps that you might download you very quickly get a sense of whether or not um, you're going to be able to to make a kind of trusted relationship with uh, these things and i mean do you think that that puts um, a greater pressure on designers to be able to respond in those much shorter time scales and be able to you know work in that much more fast-paced sense of how you establish trust with people yeah i think it does i think it puts puts more pressure not just on the design team but a but on the the business that they they might be working for, um, and and it's all, what I really enjoy about being in UX and space. One of the many things is is customers are almost driving that change, and then the raising of and we were just talking about the raising of the customers' expectations of what a great trustful digital experience is are raising every day, just because of the increased usage of digital services. And that plays out to increased expectations of customers means new things and better things have to be released much quicker. And that's fantastic for for UX folks um, because that means you've got to keep moving, you've got to keep evolving, you've got to almost from within drive the business or the the client that you're working for on to to keep up to the expectations of its customers. Uh, So yes, to, to your question, absolutely, the speed of change and the speed of expectation and the higher level of expectation means the design and UX team have to work and deliver ever faster and keep and never be satisfied I suppose that's something I, I've always thought with my teams is 
whatever we're doing now is it's not done nothing's ever done you've just got to keep moving on so let's go back a bit richard because you have seen the evolution of user experience through a number of different lenses over the time that you've been working in this area and i'm interested in particularly how you gain those kind of user insights you know we're talking about this example of trust but i guess this applies to other areas as well Um, when you think back to when you started in this area I mean, in fact, when do you consider yourself to have started in this area is possibly a, a better question to get us started. I mean, was there a moment at which you thought to yourself, yes, I am now a user experience designer? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, that probably happened during uh, the times, the days when I was in, in the telco world during the, during the 2000s as I, I moved from being a visual designer which is my background as, as visual design, moved to, uh, to Vodafone and through after Vodafone I moved to Orange. And it was during that period of uh, coming over to Orange, I felt much more open and, and, and aware and alive to, to, to the overall opportunities to, of, of user experience, as it was still called then. Um, and, and, yeah, that was over 10 years ago. Uh, coming from a visual design background, that was that was what I loved. But uh, and I what kind see. of company were you working for when you were doing that visual design? So previous to Vodafone, I was at an agency, Grey Advertising, Grey Interactive, um, late nineties. That's when I when I got started. Um, so Web One Point Zero websites, interactive TV, very early days of WAP. Um, so we're going back some time, but it was it was fantastically exciting at the time. All, all the clients of Grey Advertising wanted to to get a website up. Not that they knew what to do with it, but they they wanted a website. So there was huge uh, huge opportunities for us in the creative team to 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 explore and play around with the fairly basic tools that we had at the time. Um, but that was a fantastic grounding for me to 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 move into user experience um, from that visual visual design background, um, and I got very interested early on. Um, as as the three G licenses came on, as as to what mobile could could be and could do, uh, nobody seemed to be really moving into that area in terms of design. It was so early, and uh, that's when I moved over to <coughs> to Visavi, which was a startup joint venture that Vodafone set up with Vivendi, and uh, that was a little bit ahead of its time as to what it was trying to achieve. I think of a sort of multi access portal across mobile interactive TV and, and web. And I was uh, part of the design team there. And then uh, into Vodafone, Vodafone um, bought out vis eventually and, and we, with the design team there, we became the first global user experience team for, for Vodafone. So this uh, would have been, 2000. I guess, the era of sort of Vodafone Live and... Absolutely, yeah. Of, yeah. yeah. David so Beckham was, with his uh, sharp <laughs> clamshell phone. That's it. I was in right at the start of that and it was it was a great bunch of people. We had uh, we had some of us in London, some in Düsseldorf, and and some really early thinking as to. I think we all had that same passion of early thinking of what could mobile user experience be, and this idea of. I remember one of the projects on your address book and and the presence opportunities of. It, it was unheard of at the time, really. Of what you could you could actually understand who was available in your in your address book. Um, and there was some really great thinking early on of what the mobile experience could be, but the 
<laughs> the technology as as that times were was just not quite ready for it. So yes, Vodafone Live and the first color mobile device. Remember seeing the first sharp mobile device color screen, and with my sort of visual design background, it was a massive eye opener to me to think, wow, this could be amazing. You could do on small screen device some some great great design, even though. <laughs> 128 by 60 pixel screens um so that's that's where i started and by working with that great great team at that time um who had all sorts of different experiences some pure user experience some industrial design some visual design i learned a whole bunch more about the whole field of user experience and the many different areas to it and it absolutely fascinated me and then uh, as i went over to orange much more into service design and the the whole end-to-end design experience uh, thinking beyond the interface which to me was a was groundbreaking as a as a visual person at my background that design and user experience touches so many so many touch points um, and and I kept that kept that approach all through my career of learning more and more so when you think about that era, you know, when you were first getting started in, in mobile user experience design, had you have been commissioned on a project then to try and understand um, the notion of trust uh, among your user base, would the methods today that you use to try and measure something like that in your current role differ from those that you were using then? Yes, I think they would. I think then... Um, and we've touched on it, that the customer expectations weren't there at all. And now they're massively high. Um, and at the time with mobile, a lot of, a lot of people didn't see what, where the opportunity was, didn't see why designers would want to move into, into mobile interfaces. And, and that leads to customers as well. That at the time, most customers weren't using internet connected devices. Uh, they were quite happy doing texting and playing snake and and that was i guess to them that was it was quite a closed system that the trust was within um within their device of they could play a few games they could send texts make calls that's that's where the device experience to them was and and what we were looking at was an, an internet rich experience relatively rich for the time um and allowing customers to use their device for uh a lot more things than they'd ever used before and i think that that's where the level of trust was was so minimal of well from a customer's view why would i want to do that that's going to cost me money i don't want to spend money on the internet where i can I'm quite happy with with the small use cases that I've got now with my with my basic Nokia device. So take to take that leap of faith, I think was was a huge leap of trust. That why would you want to go into something like Vodafone Live and browse and use um, find the sports scores or you know the, the basic WAP services that we that we provided at the time, basic internet services. That was a leap of faith for a lot of people. Um, so there to, to help people understand that there was going to be something of added value to you to, to bring that level of trust was, was a huge education piece. And the, the, the limitations that existed, um, in, in the early days of, of, of WAP phones and so forth, I mean, and clearly they were less attractive for, for users. Um, and it did call on, on, uh, on, on a huge amount of trust for the, for the, 
uh, for the consumer to come across to to these more complex services. Um, but there is, it, it seems to me, there's a sort of certain level of of um, of challenge in actually delivering trustworthy services with the additional complexity that comes with uh, today's devices that are, of course, far far more complex than than they were back then. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think now the added experience people have had of interacting with so many different services um, within your smartphone, within your kind of personal space of your smartphone screen, I think that that changes what uh, what customers expect trust to be. You know, you don't you know things are pretty safe. You know, you know all these services are good. You've, you know your friends use them all. And you, you see it everywhere. You see it on TV. You, everywhere you, you go now for customers, the, the digital service that they could download or interact with that they might not have used yesterday, they know enough about it or they can find out enough about it to, to bring that trust quite quickly I think um, and I don't know if that's a very good thing but I think that's that's what's happened now if it's the mainstream you know people people use these services there there is a there is so many good uses of different digital services now that you've got to be a pretty suspicious person I think if you're not going to be quite comfortable trusting a, a well-known and well uh, promoted um, App or service. There, there have been some fairly high-profile um, uh, instances of, of breaches of trust, and, and um, what, one that comes to mind is, is this uh, baby webcam monitoring software that um, doesn't have the, the, the security protocols in place to, to, to prevent uh, unauthorized access to, to those um, uh, webcam streams. Um, and it's it's interesting that you 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 mentioned that people trust services because uh, their friends and family and people they know also trust them. Is, is there some way that we can achieve um, a, a standards that that ensure that that trust is is well placed uh, that goes beyond simply my friend uses it, therefore it's okay. Is, is there something else that we need to put in place given the, the proliferation and complexity of, of services that are coming into existence? Yeah, I think there is. And I think that's probably where, where we need to start going towards um, some, some form of verification that um, this, this is a service that has been looked at and is trusted by a certain number of people or a certain authority, whoever that might be. Um, I think that would be good, but then you can go too far that way. And a big beauty of the explosion of apps and services in the last eight years or so is is the choice and options that you have. And if you, if you bring too much uh, regulation to that, I think that that starts to take away the opportunities there. Uh, but I think you could probably do that on you know, working in finance right now. I think you could probably scale that on the type of type of app or digital service that it is. Um, something that is demanding of a higher level of trust might need to be looked at and 
regulated by the the trust measurement, whatever it would be, in, in a different way to something that is a little more frivolous maybe. Um, because I think otherwise people could be put off by um, only being a only being recommended or able to to get towards the the sort of services that have been um, that have been accredited in some way. Looking back to uh, when we did a design challenge around this area at the MEX 14 event, uh, we tasked a, a working group to come up with some principles about how you communicate trust. And, and one of the things which came out of that was this notion of facilitating social proof. Um, so broadly speaking, giving people confidence that people like them had used it and had found it to be trustworthy and being giving them some kind of visual scale which allowed them to give them uh, give people a sense um, of the extent to which that particular service was trusted which you know at face value i think seems like a, a logical and, and sensible concept but um of course you then um come up against the limitations of well it is really down to the design challenge of how you present that information to make it uh, communicable to the users and to make it universally understood. I mean, if you look at examples, for instance, like some of the app stores, I know the, the Windows Phone app store, for instance, um, has got a real problem with these kind of duplicate applications where there is a degree of social proof, if you like, around it, because uh, people can see that app. It's got the brand that they're familiar with, and it's in uh, a store that they have downloaded stuff from, and people have recommended they download stuff from. And yet that app actually is not what it purports to be. Um, and you'd expect, you know, coming from a large brand like Microsoft, that there'd be a degree of verification around that. And yet ultimately, you know, it comes down to some quite fine nuances. You have to have quite an attuned eye to be able to look in that store and see, you know what, that's the fake version of that app. That's the real version of that app. Uh, so I, I suppose it does, in a way, put quite a pressure on, on designers to be able to make sure that they're communicating very clearly what are the, the trustworthy elements of, a, of an experience. Yes, I agree. And I think there's there's something about that in terms of is the design not just is it a fake or not in an app store, but is the design approach accessible? And and is it is it a design that's that's universal? Is it going to be something that anyone could use? I think that's that's where there's a there's sometimes a, a trust issue. That, that happens if if you're providing a service to in many cases improve an area of someone's life or or to bring them something that they might not have had before the designer's responsibility is to make sure that service is accessible to to everyone and and I think this is a, quite a change we're going through at the moment of um accessible design is, has always been a challenge over the years but i think now it's 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 right at the forefront of of many many ux folks minds that this isn't just something that is a that is a nice to have for for ux teams to be doing this is something that reflects across the brand and uh, the business that you're you're designing the service for because an accessible product or service that you're providing to your customers in digital is 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 an element of trust in that um that that you are as the brand you're purveying 
a sense of uh, fairness um, and and fairness for all. And I think with that comes comes trust. And if it's something that is not just well designed, looks great, is clear, you can understand what what you're meant to do straight straight off opening it up, but it's accessible to everyone. That's going to be something that people will will trust in in, in greater greater numbers, I'm sure, than than something that was was unaccessible. Do you think it's something which is measurable, Richard? Because yeah, that strikes me as being one of the uh, underlying challenges here. Is that um, obviously user experience work is grounded in talking to and understanding how users are, are really behaving. But with an area like this, there's such uh, nuance to what a user might tell you about their experience and how they might really feel about something as kind of uh, fundamental as trust, um, that perhaps it, it's quite a challenging area to, to accurately measure for someone who's in the business of designing services which they want to be trusted. Yeah, I think it is. Uh, I, but I think there's there's ways to look at that through things like repeat usage and advocacy and even down to MPS scores that if if people are repeatedly using a service that you've designed um, and they are they are not just advocating it but they're they're promoting it uh, positively they wouldn't be doing that if they didn't trust it. Um, and I think that's where you can measure it. I agree, it's very, very difficult to measure that sort of stuff and it is intangible. Um, but I think it just just thinking about the way people use their devices, that the, the apps and services you use most regularly, most days, of course you trust them. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be using them if you didn't. And, and I think that's, that's where uh, this this could be measured. If you know, it's it's that it, it's it's like a it's like a friend. If it's you, you trust your friends, you want to talk to them. If people you don't know that well, the the trust isn't quite there yet. So it's 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 the sort of leaving the caution a little bit behind for the for the user. Of I trust this service. It's great. It it works for me. It, it does what I want it to do, and it gives me it brings added value to me. And because of that. I really trust it, and I think you can you can look at it through through those usage numbers. So, so that that's that's very interesting. I'm I'm doing quite a lot of work at the moment in um, in, in health tech, and there's a big question around trust in in, in digital health and health tech in general. Um, and and I, I suppose as as startups uh, tend to focus on uh, repeat usage, engagement of of users. Um, that that's that's typically what they're optimizing for. Um, but the, the scientific and academic community is looking for something else. They, they want proof of effectiveness. Um, and and, I, and I, I suppose there's some sort of correlation between the two. Um, but do you, do you think it's enough to say that repeat usage um, is, is a strong indicator of, of actual effectiveness in a service? I, I think it depends, of course, on what what sector it is um, with with healthcare? That's that's a very very sensitive area, and I think with 
a lot of digital healthcare services starting to take off now. This is potentially moving into a different area of what what trust means. Um, and with that, there's the, the repeat usage I was just talking about. That might not be a factor that could that could lead to to the trust because it's, potentially it might not be if it's a digital health service, a, a service you want to be using regularly. It might be something you might check into now and again. It might be um, it might be something that is an occasional interaction on your device. Um, but whatever that interaction you have with it is, is absolutely crucial and critical. And that's where if it, if it performs and it does what it should do and it, and it keeps, um, it, it keeps your blood pressure in check or whatever it might be doing, then, then it's doing its job. And that's, that's where the trust comes in. So I don't think you can, have a scaling of trust that is going to be relevant across all different services. Uh, and I think that's very interesting and, and very difficult to, to gauge. But I think, I think it's going to be a fascinating area as we go on as more, and I'd say non-traditional digital sectors start to move more into the digital space as, as to what does trust mean to the services that they're going to provide. Compared to the uh, the previous previous example I gave, how, how does it compare then between your current sector in financial services and uh, your your previous sectors, particularly with with uh, telecoms? How, how does that manifest itself in terms of the the design challenge? It's very interesting. It's it's been a, it's been a great learning for me being in financial services, thinking about that of um, how personal financial services are to people of, of course when you say that it's, it's obvious but when you come at it from a ux perspective you're thinking about the app or the interface the experience um and and clearly there's very different sectors but you'd think well there's got to be there's a lot of similarities between maybe designing a an, an app for um telco service compared to to financial services but but it's not that the um, the emotions that people have with finance and banking is of course so personal. Whereas if you're thinking about this is somebody's money and, and this is their life, this is everything for their life almost. And this is why I, I, I think so so great and exciting to about UX in in financial services that in bank it's it's so critical to to somebody's life. Whereas on the telco side, a few years back where they were certainly ahead of, of where financial services were at the time, of thinking about services, digital. Um, it's very transactional. And, of course, you need a mobile device, you need network, you need your minutes, you need your data. But that is just the enabler to get you to your other services. And that's what I really noticed during my period of time in, in the telco world, um, that oh, towards the, the tail end of my time there, I realized, well, all the exciting stuff's going to happen elsewhere. And, and the telco's providing the access to that. Um, and now in financial services, the, you go into the app as a customer. That is, that is your life in there. That is, that is critical to you. Whereas if you go into your 
um, your telco operator account app, for example, it's extremely useful, but it's very transactional. And the, the feeling of uh, how personal that is to you is, is much lower. Do you think that's going to have an influence on the balance of how uh, or what kind of um, teams organizations used to tackle this kind of issue of trust in the future particularly with regards to whether or not there's a tendency towards doing this in-house versus bringing in agencies to do it because from what a lot of what you're describing there you know it sounds like that question of trust is very closely tied to the question of brand and experience and as you say it's something with financial services which is really crucial to people's lives um do you think that that changes the view of uh, how you might tackle this versus uh, you know using an in-house team to build this kind of stuff versus partnering with a, an agency to build it yeah that's a, that's a good point i think where i am at the moment it's there's a bit of both you can you use agencies but but you also need in-house people but but i do think i do think you're right i think there's something there of a lot of a lot of companies, particularly finance, are starting maybe come to this a bit later than others, and realizing that the value that UX can bring and and the important value of that that is something that when it's such a personal experience is is that right to be outsourced to an agency and the investment that an internal team has in my mind can certainly bring. The passion and the the vision and the, the you know the, the real understanding of what the brand is trying to be with its customers it, it much closer to the experience level than than agency um, because I think you need to feel in in many ways part of the overall operation and you need to feel part of not just the design and UX team but part of the digital group trying to build and create the best possible services to their customers. And are you able to recruit those skills in-house to the, the level that you need in them? Because I know you and I have talked in the past about the um, the sort of the long term, if you like, of, of where user experience is going as a, a business and whether or not uh, there is that pipeline of, of new graduates coming in who've got the skills and who are, are willing to go into in-house roles versus agency roles. I mean, how are you finding that at the moment? Are you able to, to get the kind of talent that you need to come and work in-house? I think it's, it's a bit of both. I think you're going to always find... Um, particularly with new graduates, the, the, the appeal of an agency because of the cross-section of clients that you could work on, particularly early in your career. But I also think as, as you go further on in your career and get more experience, the, the op- opportunity and the thought of, of being internal are more, start to become more attractive to a lot of UX people where the the chunkier bigger challenge is is what's exciting to you um and yes it's it's sometimes a challenge to to recruit into into financial services where i think people particularly probably new graduates coming out would would not see the opportunities that the more seasoned ux folks could see um and and i think this is 
with the, with your point on education, maybe this is this is where there's there's a little bit of a gap of seeing the potential within a within an industry rather than and and how to evolve UX within that industry and within that business rather than getting a, a more um, not quite superficial but less a less deep level of experience across a whole bunch of different clients and both are very important and I think you need to absolutely do both but but I do think as time goes on in your career you you can see the bigger challenge and the bigger opportunity and and the and the real in-depth thinking that's needed that's needed for that and did you find that differed uh, in the time that you spent working with uh, Tesco, for instance, and, and Orange, and now with the financial services company? Um, have you found that uh, there's a different set of of skills or a different set of skills gap, as it were, for the, the kind of people that you need to hire into your teams? I don't know if it's a different set of skills. Uh, I certainly saw quite a difference between um, my time at Orange and Telco to, into Tesco. Um, and I think a big part of that was about agile and UX in agile, which that, that was completely embraced at, at Tesco and not so much in, in, in Orange at that, the time I was there. Um, and I think that's, that's a very different skill set to, um, and a way of thinking about design where retail lends itself very well to that, that there is that pressure to release an update and get out new things to your customers and keep ahead of the competition. Um, and I think Agile and UX fit very well together there. I'm reminded a bit more being in financial services now of the telco time where timescales are longer, but challenges are, are huge and the, the design challenge is a longer one with a, with a big, big goal ahead. Um, and to do that, there's there's elements of agile, but less less complete focus on um, for for a UX person your your skills and your experience in working within um, within Scrum teams and agile development. And is the challenge for for agile development um, for for UX professionals is is it is it a skill challenge or or is it um, a, a, a mindset challenge? I think it's mostly mindset, and I've seen a lot of um, UX guys I've worked with in other places come into um, agile environments, and and this is common. They, a lot of people just struggle with it and don't quite understand why. Almost as a UX person, you're being your your way of working is 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 being changed out of your control, um, and you are you are having to change your mindset as to well, we don't know what the answer is. Or we're just gonna we're gonna get something out to find the answer, and, and and I think this is that's a great thing. But I think a lot of people struggle a little bit with that from from maybe other places they've been to before. Um, but with that, with with agile and UX, it does create a fantastic environment when it works well. I think of everyone on the same page, not just UX folks, but the product owners, the development, the the analytics guys, everyone on the same page as to working with one goal to build a great thing um and and i think that's where agile and ux works really well you can get a really great culture going um, and there's nothing better than than shipping products quickly um, and getting that feedback direct from customers 
So I do think it's a mindset within that that the skill sets are, are, are still pretty similar, but it's it's adjusting your mindset, which is sometimes challenging. I suppose you have to be used to to uh, or at least get used to to putting out work which you might feel is is subpar, um, and you'd rather polish it until it's 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 sort of better, really. Yeah, I think a lot of people do think that, but I also think that's that's not right. You know, you've the proof is 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 in the customer's hands and and I think this is where some UX people have struggled that they they're not quite comfortable with that but in my mind that is the right thing to do you're not going to get the insights back um from the people who matter most which is the customers until you release and you and you've got to get something out as fast as you can and and the whole thing of agile is is that getting it out quickly and then iterating and once you get that working well then then it's great um but it is it is a different mindset, and it's it's probably a a, a more short term view of U, UX than than we had in the telco world, where we were thinking of longer term evolution of experience, and particularly now in in financial services, there's a longer term vision of improving the experience for for customers over time, and within that, there's opportunities to do agile and release, um, but. What I quite like about that is you get you get the opportunity to to work in agile and build things and get stuff out, um, but also you have a longer term view of how that fits into into the bigger plan and the bigger vision, the experience vision, the experience roadmap. And I think those two things are, are very important for for UX folks. So a, a weighty and complex topic. This whole notion of trust um but i wanted to ask you each a, a question just to um close up on this topic uh, and that's around uh, inspiration so if you think forward a year or two from now for you personally for each of you personally what is the one thing one development you'd like to see either in user behavior or a particular type of technology that would inspire you to place greater trust in a digital experience is there one missing component at the moment that would represent a big leap for either of you for me i think it's 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 the whole understanding around the data and the customer and that uh, that omnichannel vision that so many companies have um the, the thread of knowing who the customer well enough to suggest the right things at the right time at the right place in the right um, in the right channel, I think that's where we will go and we're getting towards. But I think that when that starts to work well, and if any companies can get ahead on that, the the level of trust there will will be really interesting to see. And what um, bit specifically is missing from that at the moment? Is it a lack of the data themselves? Uh, is it the, the tools to take action on that or the ability to translate those to some kind of dynamic design decision on the fly? Yeah, I think it's a bit of all of those. Um, all of these, as we know, all of these elements are starting to be worked on or looked at, but it, but I can't see it yet working working everywhere. And not just at the digital end, also in in the physical end of if it's a digital service that um, is, is part of a wider ecosystem of uh, physical stores, branches, whatever it would be, 
tying that all together in really good ways. So the conversation just flows from one channel to the other. That's that's where we, we need to be. And I think customers are expecting that to happen. Um, but I think there's so many challenges with legacy systems, backend systems, um, bridging physical and digital together, um, that there's a huge opportunity there for, for, for some, some companies to get ahead um, and, and to use that data decisioning to, to cr- create on the fly an experience for customers that, that they wouldn't usually expect, but it would be exactly the right one that brings that level of trust. I, th- I think that would be absolutely fascinating. Interesting. Um, Alex, what about for you? What would inspire you to have a greater trust in the digital world? Well, there's, there's one sector we haven't really talked about today, and that's the, that's the media sector. Um, and I'd like to draw an analogy. Um, in fact, drawing is, is absolutely what I'm going to just talk about for a moment. Uh, a couple of years ago, my niece asked me to, to um, draw a picture for her on the back of a napkin, um, you know, just to entertain her while we were having lunch. And so I drew a picture of a bird in a tree and then passed it over to her, you know, smiling and said, there you go. And she then promptly picked up another felt tip pen and scribbled all over it and and pushed it aside. And um, the reason I mention this is, is that the experience that consumers are beginning to have with media entities um, is a little bit like this. You, you you have this wonderfully designed interface that then has some um, some scribbles all over it, which are effectively the the advertising um, that gets uh, overlaid or or, uh, or or interrupts the user experience that that people have. And I and I think that there there is a fundamental lack of trust between. Um, the media and the reader that is beginning to come to a head. And I would very much like to see that resolved in some way so that uh, media properties are able to generate revenue from from the work they're producing, um, but also so that readers can continue to enjoy uh, a decent experience while providing the, the media with the revenue they require. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I guess it gets to the heart of what is often uh, really core to so many areas of experience design, of, of that sense of being able to give a, a fulfilling uh, and a genuine, uh, authentic experience to, to the user, which doesn't feel compromised by the particular sort of commercial agendas of the entities involved. And I mean, like you say, there's a balance to be struck there because clearly these things need to make uh, a decent living to continue. Um, but when that comes at the compromise of the overall experience, they tend not to last too long. Well, thank you to both of you for um, uh, what has proven to be a, a pretty wide-ranging examination of this whole area of, of trust. Um, Richard, thanks uh, in, in particular for taking the time to come and share your views from financial services. It's been really interesting for Alex and I to be able to talk to you about that. And uh, well, we'll look forward to catching up as uh, your career in this area develops. Great. No, thanks. Thanks for the invite, Mark. It's been, it's been great. Good, good to talk to you both. Richard, thank you. It's been fascinating. Thanks, Alex.
And that's it for this edition of Mech's Design Talk. Don't forget, you can find those show notes with links to everything we talked about uh, at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. Do please get in touch with feedback at mexfeed on Twitter or have a look at mobileuserexperience.com to find some ways to get in touch with us by email and phone. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.